0: Okay, let's um, just bow our hearts show share one more time as we come before God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious, priceless treasure we have of your Word. And Father, as we turn to these pages now, we pray you speak to us. Lord, help us to see more than just the historical account. Help us to see more than just details. But Lord, help us to see ourselves in these pages that we look at. And Lord, help us to see how desperately we are in need of a Savior. And then Lord, help us to see in these verses that we look at, Jesus. Because Father, you said, Jesus, you said, that in the volume of the book, it is written of me. So Lord, we want to see you this morning. Because that is our great hope. That is what will change us. That is what will empower us. So Lord, we come humbly before your word now, and we just ask you to speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So we continue in our verse-by-verse study through the book of First Kings at the moment, and we've come as far as chapter 14. Now there's a reasonable amount to try and see if we can cover this morning, so I'm not going to do recaps as we've done often uh, in uh, sessions past. Hopefully you're kind of fairly up to speed with where we are. Um, but let's just jump straight into chapter 14. And we read, at that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise, I pray thee, and disguise thyself, that thou be not known to be the wife of Jeroboam. And get thee to Shiloh. Behold, there is Abijah, the prophet, which told me that I should be king over this people. And take with thee ten loaves and cracknels and a cruse of honey, and go to him. And he shall tell thee what shall become of the child. So, a real cause of concern for them. Their son is sick. They don't know how serious this is. But it's interesting what Jeroboam immediately does here. So often, what people do in times of need, and that's resort to trying to, to go to God. But he isn't going to go directly to God. He wants to go to this prophet that he's known from times past. So, uh, the first thing that's interesting that the name here, Abijah. This child that's ill. Um, his name uh, means worshipper of Yah, or effectively worshipper of Yahweh. It's just interesting that Jeroboam would have even named his child that, given all that he'd gone through. Now, we don't know what age this child is, but it could well have been that in the very early days of his ministry, that this child had been born. Because we're not that many years on, um, if any in a significant number of years, from the time that Jeroboam has come to power. And he came back from Egypt, you remember he'd been exiled to Egypt, and he comes back with those promises of God, no doubt ringing in his ears, that this prophet Ahijah, we're going to see in a minute again, Ahijah had spoken to him, saying that he was going to become king over all of Israel, with the exception of these two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And he's given this great promise and that God will be with him, God will bless him, God will set up an everlasting dynasty for him. These incredible prices, and you just wonder when then he has his child. He names him effectively after the prophet as well, because um, Ahijah and and Abijah, they don't just sound similar, but effectively they mean, in Hebrew, they mean the same thing. Um, They both mean this kind of worshipper of Yahweh. And so this prophet, no doubt, had some sort of influence, certainly the style of Jeroboam's ministry. Now, of course, Jeroboam has gone off on the tangent. We saw that the real downfall was his fear of men. But as a result of all of this now, he decides he's going to send his wife. And he tells his wife that he wants to dress up, put some sort of disguise on. We'll talk about this in just a moment. Um, and go to this prophet. Um, you know, and again, people often want to seek God uh, when they're in need, when there's problems. The rest of the time, when things are going well, they don't really care. But when there's problems, people want to seek God. Just to give you an idea, because we're told that um, his prophet lives in Shiloh. Now Shiloh had been the place where the tabernacle had originally been set up. When the children of Israel moved into the land uh, and they conquered the land with Joshua leading them, once all that had been done and dealt with, then God had appointed this place, Shiloh, as to be the place where the tabernacle would stand. That's where Eli and his sons administered from now later that place becomes uh, effectively destroyed by the Philistines the ark was captured and so on and, and no longer does this uh, place become uh, the the kind of central the holy central place of the nation because uh, after the ark is returned from the Philistines, you remember. Eventually, after a few stops, it makes its way up to Jerusalem, uh, and this is when then David has sets the tabernacle up in Jerusalem, and then finally, uh, it's in David's heart to build a temple. And then we've looked already at the beginning of Kings, how Solomon then takes on that project from David of building the temple, and so that becomes then the the main central point. But Shiloh clearly very significant in the the life of the nation. And maybe just kind of longing for things past, we don't know, but this is where um, Ahijah uh, is living. Interestingly, he's not in Judah, but he actually is in the area of Israel, the area that's under the, the control of Jeroboam at this point. So this is where um, he's send, or he's sending, uh, Jeroboam is sending his wife. Now, just a couple of comments here, because uh, again, once we see that he's faced here with the prospect of death. So Jeroboam now seeks a holy man, as it were, and of course the world does that. We know there's all sorts of challenges that people want to see God for, but death is that big problem, isn't it? You know, when people have no hope, they turn to those that do, and people recognise that uh, as we have that expression, a man of the cloth. You know, but but somebody who is uh, esteemed to be religious is perceived to be somebody who would know and have the answers. Um, But you know, you may have even experienced in your own lives, there's been situations where people have come to you because you're a Christian and because they think, therefore, you might have the answers. And of course, we should have the answers. And of of course, death is the greatest problem that we all face. Remember last year down at uh, Creation Fest, Brian Broderson, this is a fantastic uh, sermon. A message We was just going through the I am statements in John's Gospel. And Brian was speaking on, I am the resurrection and the life. And he said, you know, Jesus didn't come to solve the problem of hunger. People often you know, say, well, if there's a God, why do people starve to death? Why is there poverty? Why is there sickness? And he said, Jesus didn't come to solve the problem of hunger. Because that wasn't our greatest need. He didn't come to solve the problem of poverty, because that wasn't our greatest need. Nor did he come to solve the problem of sickness, because that wasn't our greatest need. Jesus came to solve the problem of death, because that is our greatest need. And he solved it conclusively by rising from the dead and then offering new life. The promise of resurrection to all who put their trust in him. And so Abijah here, sick, and then Jeroboam going now to this prophet, So we read verse 4, And Jeroboam's wife did so, and rose and went to Shiloh, and came to the house of Ahijah. But Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were set by reason of his age. And the Lord said unto Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam cometh to ask a thing of thee, for her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shall thou say unto her, For it shall be that when she cometh in, that she shall feign herself to be another woman." And it was so that when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came in at the door, that he said, "Come in, thou wife of Jeroboam. Why feignest thyself to be another? For I am sent to thee with heavy tidings." This is just quite a comical moment. She's gone to some sort of trouble, um, getting herself all uh, disguised and everything else, and you know, wonder why. You know, firstly, the thing we see, of course, is it doesn't matter how good our disguises are. And we're all good at trying to put disguises on. Yet we can never fool God. That's the first thing we should take from this and realise. But also just why did she bother with this disguise? Well, it may have been that Jeroboam didn't want other people to see that he was sending his wife to a prophet of God. Maybe he just felt a little bit embarrassed after all that he'd done that he would then seek God, effectively seek God's help. Uh, In the situation, so maybe that was the reason. Maybe it was just a case of shame and and just realizing all he'd done and the the way he led Israel into sin. So we don't know. It was just speculation, but nevertheless, obviously, Ahijah just without even being able to see with his natural eyes, spiritually, is very discerning as the Lord allows him to see. And straight away, uh, notice what he says here. For I am sent to thee. I just think that's interesting. Yeah. Who was it that sent who to go and see who? I mean, Jeroboam thinks that he sent his wife. But of course, from what we see here, Hyde is basically saying, I've been sent to you. you know, yes, you've come here, but I'm the one that is giving you the message. You see, God was already working in this situation. So verse 7 says, go and tell Jeroboam, says, I hide you speaking. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. I think that's interesting because I don't think in the context it's talking about Israel and Judah. That's just a statement that God is still the God of the nation. See, God doesn't really look upon the division. God looks on them as his people, one people. Go and tell Jeroboam, thus says the God of Israel, For as much as I exalted thee from among the people, and made thee prince over my people Israel and rent the kingdom away from the house of David, and gave it thee. And yet thou hast not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments, and who followed me with all his heart, to do that only which was right in my eyes. And just to notice here, just how David's transgressions are blotted out. I mean, David made many mistakes. And uh, he says in Psalm 32, he speaks of the one who's blessed, is the man whose transgressions effectively are blotted out. And that's what we see here, that David's got this wonderful record before God. But thou hast done evil, speaking again to to Jeroboam, thou hast done evil above all that were before thee. For thou hast gone and made the other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger, and hast cast me behind thy back. Now that phrase, and and diligence in their commentary say, that cast me behind thy back, it denotes the most scornful contempt of God. And that's what's being effectively uh, said of the way that Jeroboam has conducted himself. You know, and of course we, we tend to think that we're above all that, we would never do that. You know, but I'm sure Peter would have thought that before he ends up denying Jesus three times. You know, Somebody that's been walking with Jesus, listening to Jesus' ministry for three and a half years or so, so quickly able to deny him. And you know in your own lives how easy it is suddenly you're faced with the situation and all of a sudden the guard's down and we can find ourselves almost casting God behind our back and, you know, Jeroboam kind of makes this a habit and he leads other people astray with him. But, of course, we need God's grace. We talked a lot about this um, last week. But, you know, we need God's grace to help us live without making these kind of silly errors in a sense where we don't trust him, where we don't walk with him. Verse 10. Therefore, behold, I will bring evil upon the house of Jeroboam, and will cut off from Jeroboam him that pisseth against the wall, and him that is shut up and left in Israel, and will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam, as a man takes away dung till it be all gone. What an indictment. Now, what a thing being said about this man, that he's going to lose everything, not just the kingdom but he's going to lose any kind of hope of a dynasty. And more than that, it's going to have a real impact on his own family. Now, I just want to highlight this phrase here. Of course, the King James translates it, um, him that pisseth against the wall and him that is shut up. I mean, that is actually what the Hebrew says. Uh, some of the modern translations kind of uh, interpret what is said. But what is actually said, in the Hebrew, is exactly that. And he's speaking, of course, of uh, any male descendants. Um, but it's interesting because that phrase and him that is shut up I was just very curious and I went through a number of commentaries looking and there was a lot of different uh, suggestions um, but what it seems to imply is it's saying every single male and every restrained male now what it's effectively saying is those that are not married and those that are married that seems to be the implication in the text so God is saying he's going to cut off from Jeroboam all those who are unrestrained not married And those that are married. Uh, It's an interesting kind of use of the the ideas there. Um, But God is just going to cut off every possibility of descendants of Jeroboam ever doing anything of any note or any significance or ever being in a position within the land. They're going to be cut off. and We're going to see that uh, fulfilled in just a moment. Verse 11 says, Him that dieth of Jeroboam in the city shall the dogs eat, and him that dieth in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. For the Lord has spoken it. Arise thou therefore, and get thee to thine own house. And notice what Jeroboam's wife is told here. And when thy feet enter into the city, the child shall die. Wow, what a message to be told, knowing that she's going to go back home. And the moment she enters the city, she's been told that her child will die. That's a really heavy burden to bear all the way back. You know, wonder what she was thinking. Just as a note just points out here. Um, we have this reference here to the, the fowls of the air. And I just want to just draw your attention to it, because although not necessarily relevant to the study this morning, but it's just interesting aside that uh, in Matthew 13, 22, we read there uh, one of the parables that Jesus gives. Um, uh, the parable of the, the mustard tree and talk about the, the fowls of the air coming and lodging in the branches. And so many people um, think of this as being uh, the church growing into a wonderful thing. Uh, of course, that's not what it's saying. Uh, what we see in Matthew thirteen thirty-two and so on uh, is that these fowls of the air are the ministers of Satan. They're the workers of iniquity. And all through scripture, when you see that phrase used, the fowls of the air, it's always a negative connotation to it. And it's just so in Matthew. It's speaking, of course, of the way that the church became something it should never have been. Typically the uh, plant the bush that's spoken of by Jesus in Matthew 13 would have just grown to kind of uh, just a, a kind of a hedge height but this particular one grows into a great tree in the birds of the air the ministers of uh, Satan effectively come and lodge in the branches and of course that is what's happened with the church we see with the from the time of Constantine where Christianity effectively becomes legalized from that time on we see all sorts of things infiltrating the church, pagan ideas, pagan uh, cultures and so on, um, pagan celebrations even start to infiltrate the church and becomes a problem all the way down through what they refer to as the Dark Ages and so on. And even to this day, you know, particularly the Roman Catholic Church has embraced so many things that were pagan, so many things that have been passed down from ancient Babylon. And all uh, oh, well documented and uh, so on but the church became something it should never have been the church should never have been this political body you know, Jesus didn't want us to rule and reign on the earth And in that sense, not here, not now there will be a time when Jesus comes back and he will establish his kingdom but it 's not for the Church to try and establish some sort of political kingdom and Unfortunately, particularly with the joining together of the the church, when the the head of the church and the head of the Roman Empire became the one and the same person under Constantine that 's when this problem really started to to uh, flourish and so on. But just as an aside, uh, just that mention there of the fowls of the air in the context so and we're told again, that Arise, um, When you again, when you go into the into the city, the child shall die. And Verse thirteen carries on, and all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found some good thing um, toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Now. We just have this kind of almost aside here that Ahijah says that this child, and we don't know what age, um, obviously not an infant from the context, um, but in in whatever the way it's presented here, um, he was of an age that he'd done something, there was something about him that was pleasing to God. And God says that he's the only one of the family that is going to come effectively to the grave in peace, in a sense of not in a time of war, not being killed or so on. So we carry on verse 14. Moreover, the Lord shall raise uh, him up a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam that day. But what even now? And and what we're seeing here is that we're going to see just in the next chapter, King Baasha will be the very king whom God will raise up over Israel and he's going to cut off the house of Jeroboam. Um, And again, the the implication is, but what even now is is about to happen is the implication that we see there. Verse 15, For the Lord shall smite Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. And he shall root up Israel out of this good land which he gave to their fathers and shall scatter them beyond the river because they have made their groves, provoking the Lord to anger. And he shall give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who did sin and who made Israel to sin. Now this is an incredible A couple of verses, verse 15 and verse 16, 1 Kings 14. Because this is the first time since the nation had entered into the promised land and had been established as a nation there. That they're now told, not that if they're disobedient they will be removed. That's already been prophesied. But now they're being told it will happen. This is very dramatic in a sense because we read, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 28 and elsewhere, there's a good uh, portion of scripture to kind of go back to quite regularly. Because there's so much in Deuteronomy 28 that is of prophetic significance, particularly in the time we live in. But it speaks of the progress, downward progress of the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy 28 starts, in fact, let's just, just, if you've got your Bibles, let's just turn there. And we'll have a quick look, because it's so helpful just to see this breakdown for us. We start in Deuteronomy 28 with um, the blessings that are being pronounced. Uh, And God just speaks his blessing over the nation if they're obedient. And we start, really, you go from the introductory verse, and verse 2 then starts, And these blessings shall come on thee. And we're given a list of all the blessings. And really culminating in verse thirteen and so on, and the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail, thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath, uh, and thou shalt not, uh, sorry, and if thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and to do them, and thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I command thee this day to the right hand or to the left, or to go after other gods to serve them. so we have from really verse two down to verse. 13 there, just these verses of blessing. The rest of the chapter, and it's one of those long chapters in the Bible, there's 68 verses in the chapter, the rest of the chapter deals with the curses. What happens if you don't obey? And God, of course, needs to lay that on a bit thick because you know sometimes we are very slow on realising the effects of our sin. And so God really makes it very clear to Israel what's going to happen. But if you study the chapter, you'll see that God starts by talking about the problems that will happen, you know, the way that it will affect them the way they'll struggle. In the opening, from, from verse 15, the first portion really just talks about general curses that will be upon them. But then it talks about nations who would take their grain, take their food away. And during the time of the judges, we see exactly that happen. But then it starts to get a little worse than that. And we then get to the time it's prophesied that if they disobey, they will be taken away From the land. And verse 36 really picks up from there. It talks about really that time when they were taken off to Babylon. The Lord shall bring thee and thy king, which thou shalt set over thee, unto a nation which neither uh, thou nor thy fathers have known. And there thou shalt serve other gods, wood and stone. And it goes on. So it starts off by just talking about the first level of judgment that God will bring for disobedience. And again, we see that with the um, situations with the likes of Gideon threshing floor in the wine press, trying to keep away from the Midianites who were coming and taking away the produce of the land. That was the first level, but then their iniquity carried on, and now we get to this time, and now God, and right that this verse that we're looking at in First Kings, now says, okay, that's it, enough, you are going to be taken away in judgment. Again, just let me read that. For the Lord shall smite Israel As a reed is shaken in the water. It's kind of a graphic image if you just kind of picture that. And he shall root up Israel out of this good land which he gave to their fathers. And shall scatter them beyond the river. There's no doubt in their minds we may not perceive, but that's talking of the river Euphrates. Because that's the border that God had set. If you go back and look in Genesis 15, that is the border that God had set for the land of Israel given to Abraham. And so from, they'll be scattered beyond that boundary. And of course, these things we've seen all come to pass historically. But this is that moment where suddenly the, dare I say, the threat of judgment turns into the reality and the promise that judgment will now actually come. It's no longer a, if you're naughty, you know, you'll get told off. This is a, okay, hold your hand out time. You know? So Deuteronomy carries on. It then goes on speaking of the judgments that are going to come and really um, verse 52 very much speaks of um, 606 BC, 587 BC when the uh, sieges were uh, upon Jerusalem and so on. Down to verse 58 which speaks of the time about AD 70 when again the Romans came and destroyed the land and they were just dispersed around the world. And that next portion, particularly verse 64 of Deuteronomy 28 down to 67, just speaks so Clearly, and uh, with, with real clarity of the, the time of the Holocaust and everything that the Jews have gone through uh, in the last couple of centuries. Um, but of course, we do read, let's just turn, if you've got your Bibles there, to, to Deuteronomy 30, because we need to look at the context. Because a lot of people, even um, a lot of uh, Muslims, will accept Deuteronomy 28, and they accept that God cast Israel out of the land because they were disobedient. What they don't read is what we see in verse 30. And it says, And it shall come to pass when, now notice that God doesn't say if here, he says when, God knew what was going to happen. But when all these things have come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among the nations whither the Lord God has driven thee, and shall return unto the Lord thy God, and shall obey his voice according to all thy command thee this day, thou and thy children with all thine heart, with all thy soul, that then the Lord God will turn thy captivity And have compassion upon thee, and will return, and gather thee from all the nations, whether the Lord thy God has scattered thee. reference, you may make a note if you want to, to Matthew 24, verse 31, because that's when Jesus speaks of the second coming, that he will come back and he will gather the outcasts of Israel from the four corners of the earth, just as is prophesied in that verse 3. Of Deuteronomy chapter 30. So God does promise that even though all of these things will come upon the nation, they will be brought back to their land. And the ultimate, of course, will be at the second coming, when the final, the second time, uh Isaiah speaks of two regatherings. First one really began in nineteen forty-eight. Uh we see that quite clearly from history now. But the second regathering, the Lord will set the, the second time, we're told in Isaiah. And so again, this scripture very pivotal because this is now where Israel are told. This is it. You are going to be uh, sent away from your land in judgment. But just notice again, all of this emanating from one man's sin. Now, in a sense, of course, the nation were there. Everybody was guilty. Everybody was responsible. They were going along with these things. And so easily they could have turned away from this rebellion. But notice what we read again in verse 16. And he shall give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, who did sin, And who made Israel to sin. Now, last week we commented on just, you know, how much good could have been done by somebody in obedience. We're talking about the prophet that ended up being uh, eaten by the lion. You know, just that one individual, if he'd only trusted God and been obedient to God throughout, you know, the amount of good. He could have turned Jeroboam back to the Lord because he was disobedient. We read. Because of all this, Jeroboam carried on sinning, effectively, is what we're told. And now, here we see just how one man, who through fear of men ended up getting involved in sin himself, led the whole nation into idolatry. And so, they have then brought this judgment upon them. You realize, you know, it's so easy to put this onto other people and think that it doesn't matter about ourselves, but it does. Each of us are accountable to God. Our actions are important. You have at this stage no idea of all the things that God has planned for you. how a God would use you if He can, and what effect your obedience could have in a positive way, but also the effect that your disobedience could have you see we 've got to realize we 're not neutral it 's a bit like riding a bike. you stop and you fall off you know you can 't just not pedal and, and you 'll be fine you know one, you know one way or another it 's a big issue we need to. In our hearts, be absolutely convinced and, and determined that we are going to seek to obey God. Let's carry on. Verse 17, And Jeroboam's wife arose, departed, and came to Terza. Interestingly enough, that place, Terza, named after the youngest daughter of Zlofahad that we read about in Numbers 27. And that's interesting because these girls, if you remember Numbers 27, um, Marla, their eldest daughter, which is where Joy and I got the name Marla from, um, but they come to Moses and they ask, uh, about their inheritance. You know, they really wanted, they didn't want their name to be blotted out in Israel. You know, because they had no, their father hadn't had any son, and therefore, under the law as it stood, they wouldn't get any inheritance. So Moses goes to the law, the, the answer comes back yes, you can have the inheritance. And so they're living in this place named after this young girl who'd been part of this uh, group, these five daughters that had gone to Moses, seeking to have a name, a lasting name in Israel. And this is where they are about to have their name blotted out of Israel, in a sense, in terms of the dynasty And from this point. This is kind of a sad irony to that. Um, But when she came to the threshold of the door, the child died. And they buried him, and all Israel mourned for him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by the hand of his servant, Ahijah, the prophet. Verse 19 says, And the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And the days which Jeroboam reigned were two and twenty years, twenty-two years on the throne. And he slept with his fathers, and Nadab his son reigned in his stead. Now, it's easy just to read over that, but I was looking at this just on my journey out to London yesterday. I was sat on the train, just sat there with my Bible, and just just reading a little bit slower pace just through these things and it just hit me what we see in verse 19 there because we've got the rest of Jeroboam's life is touched on in one sentence so look what we've got the rest of the acts of Jeroboam how he warred how he reigned they're written in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel which is a document we don't have today you know that was made notes of but what is it that God records? See, God doesn't record all of these things. It's not your career, your finances, your achievements. All of that amounts to just one sentence in the light of eternity. But it's where you stood with God. It's were you obedient to God. That's what matters. You see, that's what all the print that we have about Jeroboam is really all about. It's did he obey or did he disobey? And of course we see that this individual just disobeys. That's... Really, at the end of the day, you know, at the end of this life, all of your achievements in this life will mean nothing. They'll amount to just a cursory sentence. That's all they'll be. But what really matters is how you've lived before God. Just to again. Just show you on a, a chart. So we've got Jeroboam. Around about 985 is when he came to the throne, and we've just been just seen there in the text. 22 years he reigned, and then his son Nadab. So again, we have at least two sons we know of because we know that uh, uh, Abijah has died, uh, and then this other son obviously then comes to the throne, but he only reigns for just two years. And then we're going to see in a moment that King Baasha uh, is the next individual to come to the throne. But we see this constant changing of dynasty, and we'll look at this a number of times. First Kings will cover this period from Jeroboam all the way down to this king here, um, Ahaziah. Okay? So we'll look up to that point as we go through this journey through First Kings. Looking at the southern kingdom so Rehoboam again starts his reign at roughly the same time Um, and he only reigns for 17 years his son Abijam comes to the throne Uh, just reigns for 3 years Um, and then we have Asa and followed by Jehoshaphat so we actually have some good news stories in a sense coming up because the green ones you can see here there's only 5 of them but they were the good kings they were the only ones of whom good things are recorded so we'll look at that as we go through but let's just pick up verse 21 and Rehoboam The son of Solomon reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord did choose out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was uh, Naamah the Ammonites. And Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they had committed above all that their fathers had done. So not only up in Israel was the idolatry taking hold, But down in Judah, too. You know, they, they should have known better. They had everything that they could have possibly wanted. You know, in a sense, you can understand up in Israel, Jeroboam not wanting the people to come back down south for the feast, and so he does what he does he sets up his golden calves. But in Judah, they've got the temple. There's no problem with them going to the temple to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost, and then the, the Feast at the end of the, the, the year, the Feast of Ingathering and Tabernacles and so on. You know, it's such a shame. It's interesting, you know, in the book of Jeremiah, God does speak harshly about Israel, but even more so about Judah. Because he says of Judah, that you know, you've seen what Israel did, and you didn't repent. When we get to further in our study, we'll probably look uh, at the, the comparisons that we see between Israel and Judah, between the way that the, the church developed down through the ages, the Catholic church, the Protestant church as it was. you know, It's interesting if you look in Revelation, the letters to the seven churches there. How Sardis, which is typically seen as being representative of the Protestant church, there's nothing good said of it. Thyatira, typically seen as being representative of the Catholic Church, are commended for their good works. And of course, the Catholic Church has been responsible for many, many good works. You know, loads of works that have been done to help children and orphanages and all sorts of things that they've done, hospitals, you know, they've been responsible for. And of course, the Christian Church in general, but the Catholic Church very much has done a lot of good works. And they're commended for that, we see. But Sardis, again, typically the the Protestant church, doesn't seem to have learned from the mistakes. Just as we see this incredible parallel between Judah and Israel. Judah should have learned from the mistakes and doesn't. Verse 23, for they also built them high places and images and groves on every high hill and under every green tree. They weren't just content with what was already there, they went and made new things. And then we're told verse 24, and there were also sodomites in the land. And they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. Now, of course, this isn't a popular subject today because the moment we start talking about sodomites, we start talking about homosexuality, immediately people start saying that we're intolerant. Have you ever noticed that they're very intolerant in the way they do that? You see, what is tolerant? They're tolerant of everything that supports what they feel and believe and think. But anything that disagrees with what they think or feel or believe, well, that's intolerant. You see, what they really mean is that they like anything other than the biblical Christian view. And we see it, you know, so often. And, and we were talking a little bit about uh, this briefly at Bible study, and it just came up. And, um, you know, it, there's a question about nurture or nature in all of these things. And ultimately, it comes down to what has God said? That's the big issue. You know, because people, you know, whether they choose to believe in God or not, I mean, there's enough abundant evidence that God exists. So the position that Christians hold. Is all about what does God say, what does the Bible say. And you cannot twist the Bible to make it say something other than it says. Quite clearly, here, this is something that God speaks of as an abomination. Now, you know, people will talk about natural desires or whatever else. Well, look, you know, desires, we all have desires, but desires don't necessarily give us the license to do what we want to do. You know, I like driving fast. I had a motorbike for many years and I uh, did some track days and went on to racetracks and things. And I absolutely loved it. But of course, there's a proper framework for those type of things. And a track is fine, okay. But you can't drive super fast on the road and not expect the law to catch you. You see, God has given us his laws, and you can't just say, well, I've got a desire. You see, it's not about desire, it's about what the law says. You see, we may even say, but I don't agree with the law. I don't think the law's right. That's okay, it doesn't change the fact that that's what the law is. And when it comes to God's laws, it doesn't matter whether you don't like them, or don't agree with them, or don't fully understand them. God has said his laws, and once again, we see very clearly here, that this whole issue is something that God speaks of as an abomination, and it was because of things like this that the nations that were inhabiting the land of Canaan were cast out. Now, you can do studies. There is numerous um, commentaries that will give you information on this, or other uh, extra-biblical records that will talk about the state of those nations that lived in the land. They were um, well; some of them were very close to wiping themselves out through disease, uh, and it was just a it was a real mess. And God clearly wanting to address this problem. One of the things I find quite interesting when it comes to this issue of you know homosexuality, is it natural and so on, look from a biblical perspective, the Bible says it 's wrong now, if the Bible is wrong, then there is no God. if there's no God, then then we are here purely as a result of time, chance, and evolution. so if we 're the result of evolution, well once again, how do you justify? A homosexual relationship on the basis of the fact that naturally survival of the fittest would then eradicate that. You see, whichever way you go, you see, if you start with God, you have a problem. But if you opt not to start with God, there's a problem too. Now, once again, as we need to clarify, God sent his son so that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And the Bible, and particularly the book of Romans, is a great portion that lists a whole load of sins, lots of different sins. Every one of us is guilty before God. You know, None of us are in a position where we can say we've got it right. The Bible makes it clear we've all fallen short of God's standard, whether it be through a desire that we've allowed to be fulfilled, or whatever else. We all need Jesus. Verse 25 carries on. It came to pass in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, The Shishak king of Egypt came up against Jerusalem and he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and even took away all. uh, And he took away all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. And king Rehoboam made in their stead brazen shields and committed them unto the hands of the chief of the guard which kept the door of the king's house. And it was so that when the king went into the house of the Lord that the guard bare them and brought them back into the guard chamber. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did... Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Now, we have, obviously, the book of Chronicles. Uh, Whether that is the book that's in reference here, um, possibly not. We don't have a full record in Chronicles. We have the things that God intended us to have, of course. Um, But as I said before, Chronicles, the book of Chronicles uh, 1 and 2, really is looking at the history from the southern kingdom's perspective, which is why we're just given a very quick snapshot here of what was going on down in the south whilst we've been looking at what's been going on up in the north. So we've just been told a little bit about Rehoboam. And the conclusion says, And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And his mother's name was Naamah the Ammonites. Uh, and Abijah, his son, reigned in his stead. Uh, just to clarify, if you do a little bit of study, you'll realize uh, that you may have a, a slight issue there. This is really, in the same way as in the Hebrew we don't have a word for grandfather, This implica- the implication here, and you can see from the text, is actually this would be his grandmother. Uh, is the context just if you happen to study and that crops up okay let's just uh, go through the next chapter it's not a very long chapter but it just uh, brings us to the end of this kind of period of time historically so now in the 18th year of Jeroboam the son of Nebat uh, uh, reigned uh, Abijam over Judah okay so Jeroboam still on the throne up north Rehoboam now passes off the scene down south and his son Abijam Interestingly, the same name as as we've seen already. Um, Both named possibly after this prophet. But anyway, um, he then reigns over Judah. And we're just told, three years he reigned in Jerusalem. And his mother's name uh, was uh, Maacah, the daughter of uh, Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. So another reference again to the way that David's heart was right. David made mistakes, but his heart was right. But unfortunately, we find here um, that uh, this, this next king, again, the kings were supposed to write out a copy of the law, they were supposed to do all of these things. Clearly, that didn't take place. Uh, we told, nevertheless, for David's sake did the Lord his God give him a lamp in Jerusalem to set up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. Because David did uh, that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. And then we just get a little caveat here. Save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Now, ultimately, as I said already, David's sins are blotted out. But this comment here is just really a little bit broader. It's talking about the way that David lived his life. And really, apart from that one big issue, um, which God obviously deals with and David repents from and so on. um, We're told that David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside. What a great testimony to have. So we read in verse 6, and there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Okay, so again, although Rehoboam has now died as we're going through this chronologically, we just kind of a flashback. And just to mention the fact that there has been this raw war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, I find that interesting because Rehoboam has been specifically told not to get involved in fighting against Jeroboam because God had brought that to pass. But nevertheless, this conflict still carries on. Now, the rest of the acts of Abijah. This is Rehoboam's son. And all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. So now we find that Rehoboam, who's Solomon's son, and now Solomon's grandson, all end up in this kind of ongoing feud with the, the northern kingdom and so on. And Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his stead. And in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, reigned Asa over Judah. Okay, so Jeroboam up north, remember, he reigns for 22 years. There's another two years of his reign to go. Um, And then Asa has come to the throne down in Judah. 41 years he reigned in Jerusalem. His mother's name... Hosmacha, the daughter of Abishalom, again, that's, grand, uh, that's a um, uh, grandmother, is effectively the idea. His, his, his grandmother's name was Macha, the daughter of Abishalom. Um, and Asa did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did David his father. What a refreshing change it is to hear that sentence. Asa did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. But it's interesting, because Chronicles actually paints a slightly different picture, and we'll comment in just a moment on that. Let's carry on for now. And he took away the Sodomites out of the land and removed all the idols that his father had made. And also, uh, Maekah, his mother, grandmother, uh, even her he removed from being queen. She was in the role of effectively queen mother uh, at this point. Because she had made an idol in a grove. And Asa destroyed her idol and burnt it in the brook Kidron, which runs down the side of Jerusalem. But the high places were not removed, nevertheless, Asa's the was perfect with the Lord all his days. That's the verse that Jared shared with us earlier. Verse 15, And he brought in the things which his father had dedicated, and the things which he himself had dedicated into the house of the Lord, silver and gold and vessels. And again we're told, And there was war between Asa, and now the next king up north, who's not yet been introduced officially to us, but, uh, and Baasha, king of Israel all their days. And then we're told, verse 17, And Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might not suffer any to go out or come in to ask the king of Judah. So there's still a problem. Jeroboam tried to put an end to it, with people going down south back to Jerusalem, possibly for the feast. And so what Baasha now is trying to do is fortify a city and stop people making that journey back. Again, the real concern is people might go back uh, to Judah where the temple is, and he may lose his position and reign and so on. Then... Asa took all the silver and the gold that were left in the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and delivered them into the hand of his servants. And, the, uh, and King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadid, the king of Debrimon, uh, the son of Hesion, king of Syria, that dwelt in Damascus. Okay, so just get the picture. So King Asa's down south. we told he's seeking after God. He's following God and so on. But now he doesn't go to God for help. He goes to an external source, he goes to the king of Syria and says, I've got a problem, I'm struggling with Baasha up north here, Um, and we read verse 19, There is a league between me and thee, between my father and thy father. Behold, I have set unto thee a present of silver and gold. Come and break thy league with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may depart from me. So, Ben-Hadid, King Asa, and sent the captains of the host which he had against the cities of Israel and smote Ijon and Dan and Abel, Beth, Macha, and all uh, Shinaroth with all the land of Naphtali. And it came to pass that when Basha heard thereof that he left off building Ramah and dwelt in Terza. Okay, so again, still the place seems to become kind of the capital city now uh, where these kings of the north are, are dwelling and living. Then King Asa made a proclamation throughout all Judah. none was exempted, and they took away the stones of Ramah and the timber thereof, wherewith Baasha had built it, and King Asa built with them Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. The rest of the acts of Asa, Asa, and all his might, and all that he did, uh, and the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Nevertheless, in the time of his old age, uh, he was diseased in his feet." Now this, we find, is uh, seemingly a judgment of God. And I'll show you why in just a moment. And Asa slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And his father and Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his stead. Okay, and now we're going to go back up north. And Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned over Israel two years. We've seen that already. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father, and in the sin wherewith he made Israel to sin and Baasha, the son of Ahijah, now another Ahijah here, um, but this is a different one of the house of Issachar, conspired against him and Baasha smote him at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines for Nadab and all Israel laid siege to Gibbethon, even in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, did Baasha slay him and reigned in his stead. So Baasha effectively is a, a, a coup. On the, the dynasty of uh, Jeroboam here, he comes up against his son. And it came to pass that when he reigned that he smote all the house of Jeroboam. So this now concludes what we've seen already. This prophecy about the house of Jeroboam being cut off. And we read, he left not to Jeroboam any that breathed until he had destroyed him according unto the saying of the Lord which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilinite. Because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned, and with uh, and which he made Israel to sin by his provocation, wherewith he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. So now Baasha steps in and gets rid of the rest of uh, the descendants now of Jeroboam. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab, all he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And then we told, and there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. Just before we conclude there, because there didn't need to be war between them. If you turn to Second Chronicles chapter sixteen, it's a really interesting portion, and we're not going to read it all now. But your homework, if you want, is to go read, just read Second Chronicles sixteen, because you'll see there. In fact, actually, um, you can pick it up from chapter fourteen of Second uh, Chronicles. Uh, and really, Second Chronicles 14 through to 16 is an interesting situation because what we find is that not long after Asa, who's down south, ends up coming to the throne, there's a real threat. There's a two-million-man Ethiopian army, uh, and Ethiopia were a really significant power at this time historically, that are amass, amassed against him. And he's absolutely terrified. And if you look in Second uh, Chronicles 14, Verse 11, and we read there, And Asa cried unto the Lord his God, and said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O God, thou art our God, let not man prevail over us. Now, he's faced with an impossible situation. There's possibly, at best, somewhere around about, um, just under 500,000 of Israel. There's 2 million. They're outnumbered 4 to 1 of, of the Ethiopians that are coming up against them. And so he goes to God. Because there's no way he can win that on his own. And God gives him a victory. And it's a wonderful moment and a time for King Asa. But then, as we've already seen, King Baasha up in the north starts to build this city starts causing a few problems so what does he do go to God again no he goes to the king of Syria he gives away gold and silver and all those kind of things and he makes an alliance with an ungodly king and as a result of that We read, just pick up um, Hananiah, the prophet, verse verse, um, 7 of chapter 16 says, um, came to ask the king of Judah and said unto him, because thou hast relied on the king of Syria and hast not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of thy hand. So that becomes a problem that he has to deal with later. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim a huge host with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because thou did rely on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. And then this very famous verse that we know. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. But then Hananiah the prophet carries on and says, "Hearing thou has done foolishly. Therefore from henceforth thou shalt have wars. And we find that as a result of this Um, he's crossed with the prophet, he's got put put us in prison but then he ends up being diseased in his feet as we've just seen so it's just a great example of a big problem we trust God because we can't solve it a little problem, oh we do that ourselves that's exactly what he does and the danger is that we find a little problem in our lives whatever it be, circumstances or whatever and rather than going to God on that one we think we can solve that and so we'll try and deal with it ourselves and it's sin it's as simple as that, because it is not trusting God. So a really good lesson. If the Lord tarries and we move into Chronicles, we'll look at that in more depth. But it's just helpful as we're going through this, just to see a little bit more detail that Chronicles gives us about this event. Um, but then we just conclude verse um, 33. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, began Baasha the son of Ahijah, to reign over all Israel in Terza, twenty and four years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam. And in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin. Now that's going to become a refrain now throughout the book of Kings. Speaking of Jeroboam, he made all Israel to sin. For eternity, Jeroboam has now got that label. You know, just a couple of key moments in his life. Everything could have been so, so different. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you once again for your word and for the lessons that are contained therein, Lord, for us right here, right now. Lord, firstly we see that you're calling us to obedience. Lord, to trust you. And so Father, Lord, help us to do that regardless of circumstances. Lord, even if we think we can solve the problem or we know the answers, Lord, teach us to come to you. Father, help us to realize that our obedience can have such a big impact in the scheme of things. Because we don't see as you see. Lord, you are outside of time. And Lord, we want to be obedient to you because you know far more than we know, Lord. Your thoughts are above our thoughts, your ways above our ways. And so Lord, just impress these things upon our hearts. Just speak to us, Lord, over the days, the weeks ahead. And Father, help us as individuals and as a fellowship of believers here with your grace, with your spirit to seek to be obedient to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.